Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. as a childhood, because one of the things I remember vividly were, were the TV shows. I, I remember the TV shows at my grandma's house, uh, and there were a variety of them. Perry Mason was a biggie. Um, Peyton Place was uh, on at that time. Lawrence Welk, lots of Lawrence Welk. And then in the strange bedfellows department, at the same night that they had Lawrence Welk, we also could watch bullfights from Mexico. And uh, it, frankly, I mean, if you've never seen a bullfight, it was, it was very brutal. Uh, it, perhaps some of you have seen them. Um, of course, they start off with the men on the horses, and they stab the bull in the back until they're bleeding profusely. And then I don't know if those are the picadores or if the next guys that come out with a little, you know, they look like big cocktail um, uh, toothpicks, and they stab them in the back and then run away. And, and then by the time the matadors had his way with them, I remember at the end of uh, every fight... Uh, I felt sorry for the bull because he was standing there panting before the, the, the matador was about ready to deliver the coup de grace, panting, exhausted, bleeding, and also still very dangerous. Last week, we left the dragon standing on the shore of the sea. He is bl- bloodied, he is bruised, he is exhausted and befuddled because he has failed at every, every, on every count but he is still very dangerous. And he decides to call forth two assistants from the depths of hell. Let's turn together to the text. How many of you brought your Bibles this morning? Raise your... There we go, so I can praise you. Oh, look at all of you. Praise thee. If you want that praise for yourself, be sure and bring your Bible. I know you live for that. Revelation 13, beginning with verse 1. I know that this is entitled Two Beasts and a Lamb. Today it's just going to be two beasts. I can't get to the lamb. We'll do the lamb next week. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard that had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God 
and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power, watch this, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to fall, to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. So out of the depths, the beast, the dragon, I should say, who is Satan, we learned that last week. If you don't believe in a real Satan, go back, get last week's tape. I believe in a real Satan. And to tell you the truth, I woke up this morning, I woke up at 3.30 dreaming that I was being bitten by a serpent. No kidding. I couldn't not go back to sleep. So I spent much of the morning in prayer, which is not a bad way to spend the morning. But we talked about how nasty the devil gets when you begin to dare to attack him. This has been one of those weeks. This dragon, this Satan, calls forth two assistants, the sea beast and the land beast. Now, this all continues to sound very strange to us, right? I mean, this isn't the sort of stuff that you're reading as fairy tales at night as you put your children to bed, right? This is all very bizarre, but if you were steeped in Old Testament, as John, the writer of this, was steeped in Old Testament, it would make much more sense to you. First of all, if you knew the Old Testament, you would know the story of Job. For in Job, we are introduced to two characters. In chapter 40 and chapter 41, you can go and look later on. Chapter 40, we are introduced to Behemoth. Behemoth, you know the name. It is a huge, huge land beast. We don't even exactly know who Behemoth is, but he's so large he cannot be trapped or tamed. And he represents this great power, this uh, uncontrollable power that roams the earth. And in the very next chapter, chapter 41, we are introduced to another beast. But this one is out of the sea. Do you remember his name? Leviathan. Leviathan. You've heard that word. 
Probably as a movie title. Did you know it came out of the Bible? And once again, it is the story about a a fish that is so great, a, a sea monster that is so great that it cannot be netted or speared. And so we have already in the Old Testament literature two great, a land beast and a sea beast that are uh, symbols of great power, fearsome power. But there's more that we need to know if we're really going to get ourselves in the mindset of the readers of this originally. In Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision. Prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision. And he has a vision of four different creatures. The first creature is like a lion. The second creature is like a bear. The third creature is like a leopard. And the fourth creature, well, he can't even exactly describe it. He just says that it's horrible. And he says, oh, by the way, it has horns. How many horns? Would you like to take a guess? Ten horns. Ten horns means a lot. There's a lot of horns on this creature. That's in Daniel. All right. So here's the Old Testament background for John as he is taking this image which the Holy Spirit is giving to him. And God always speaks to us out of our experience, out of our understanding of Scripture. So John, who knows about Behemoth, knows about Leviathan, and knows about Daniel's image, suddenly has this image that is presenting itself to him. And I want to return to the text. The dragon is standing on the seashore. He is bloodied, and he is bruised, but he is still furious, and he needs reinforcement. And so he looks out across the waters, and we follow his gaze. And slowly rising out of the waters, we see a new Leviathan, a horrible monster. John's description of the creature seems to follow the order of the body parts that would appear if it was rising massively and frighteningly out of the waters. For first, you see the the tips of the horns. How many horns? Ten. Very good. Well done. Now that's the enthusiasm I like. When we read ten, we need to understand it means a lot. Horns means power. So the creature is a power, uh, it, it is a creature with great, great power. What else do we see? Well, he continues to rise and we see heads, not just head, again, plural heads. How many heads? Seven, just like the dragon. Lephiathan has seven heads. And we see crowns too. But notice, where are the crowns? Are they on the heads? No, on the dragon they were on the heads. On the Leviathan, where are the heads? Uh, the crowns. They are on the horns. Now, when you think... Crowns mean authority. Heads, uh, horns means power. Could it be that we are looking at an image of power that is, uh, authority that is taken by force? Authority that is taken by power. And it's a good thing that the crowns are hanging on the, the horns because then it allows us a clear glimpse of the seven heads. For we read that on each seven, each of the seven heads of this horrible beast is written what? Blasphemous names. Blasphemous names, names that mock the living God. Now we continue to see as the the horns rise above the water, the heads rise above the water, we see the crowns on the horns, and we see more body parts begin to appear. Ah, it looks like a leopard. Oh, wait, no, it has feet like a, a bear. Oh, wait, no, it has a mouth like a lion. This is like Frankenstein's monster here. The dragon has taken bits and pieces of each of the creatures out of Daniel's vision, and he's sewn them together. And frankly, if we can stand back from a moment, we don't know whether to be terrified or to laugh. He looks like a bad toy that has been sewn together from bits and pieces from the toy shop. But he's an awful scary toy. One of the heads seems to have a fatal wound, but is healed. And the whole world is astonished, and they begin to cry out words that we often hear ascribed to God. Who is like, 
Well, we hear that in the, in the Psalms, who is like the Lord, but not here. It is who is like the beast. Who can make war against the beast? Who can defeat this horrible creature? The people of the world in fear begin to worship the beast. And the beast, taking on the power that comes from this worship of the people, begins to utter horrible blasphemies against the real God. And we read that he reigns for a period of how long? Forty-two months. How long is forty-two months? Three and a half years. It's a long time, but it will stop. It will end. It is not complete. It is a period of incompleteness. And then we read these words. He begins to make war on whom? The saints. My friends, if you are one who has grown up in the tradition that believes the church is raptured out before all of this occurs, you need to look at this passage. How should you understand that? He begins to make war on the saints and appears, in fact, to conquer them. If that isn't enough, the dragon calls forth another beast, another ally. This one, instead of coming out of the sea, it rises forth out of the land. He is more deceptive because at first he appears to be harmless. He looks like a little lamb. And of course, our, our minds are drawn back to the earlier chapters when we see the, the Lamb of God. In fact, he only has two little horns instead of like the lamb that we saw earlier. But we discover pretty soon that there's an imposter in this lamb's clothing. In fact, when that lamb speaks, you expect to hear a tiny little bleat. But instead, what do we hear? The voice of the dragon. Now, that would be disconcerting, wouldn't it? Hold a little lamb in your arms and have it let roar forth with a, a dragon-like roar. What is this second earth beast about? The earth beast is the sea beast's minister of propaganda. If sea beast is the Hitler, the earth beast is Hitler's Goebbels. He is the sea beast's promoter, his manager. He performs miracles that mimic the Old Testament. And when he gains the attention of the world, then he turns the worship towards the sea beast. He sets up an image and orders the world to worship it. He deceives the people. That's the great word that describes the land beast. He is a deceiver. Somehow he causes statues to speak. And those who don't worship the statue are killed. And then in what is perhaps the best known tidbit from this book in Revelation, this, the land beast causes every single human being, rich and poor, small and great, slave and free, to receive a mark on the forehead. And if you don't have the mark, you cannot buy anything. The mark is a number, and the number is 666. And now it appears that the dragon's war party is complete. You realize what you have here, don't you? You have an unholy trinity. You have each part that parodies the, the person of the trinity. Satan parodies the father. The sea beast is a parody of the sun, the land beast who is pointing towards the sea beast and directing worship to him. The, the land beast is a parody of the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world is all of this about? I'm not sure. I'll take a stab. I believe that this vision has both historical and prophetic elements. And I want to look first of all at the historical element of it because it was written in a context. What is the sea beast? What is this fearsome creature that came out of the sea to invade the Middle East? Who would that have been for John? It was Rome. It was Rome coming from the west across the sea in their great ships, landing on the shores and invading that, uh, their land. 
They invaded from the West. I believe that the heads represent the various Roman empires who were in power during the time that Palestine was under control. And what of the blasphemous names of the heads of the beast? Think back to our sermons in the early part of this book when we were talking about the seven letters to the seven church. What was the big issue facing the seven churches? What was the big issue facing them? Emperor worship. Do you remember? Emperor worship. These churches, these communities were outdoing each other in building great temples of worship to the emperor. They had declared that the Roman emperor, a man after all, was in fact God, divine. And when John writes to the seven churches, he's saying, hang in there. Don't bow your knee to the emperor. Don't you fall for this. This is false worship. These are false gods. They are no gods. Do you have that in your mind? This is the context. Here is Rome. Here are these false gods. Now, some of the emperors played it down, but some of them lapped it up. When Augustus died, he was declared by the Senate to be divus, which is one like the gods. Nero took it one step far, farther, that crazy man who was the bane of the Christians. Uh, he printed up coins that read on the coins, Nero, the savior of the world. And Domitian, who was probably ruling at the time that John wrote the Revelation, took it farther than the rest of them. This crazy man, Domitian, wrote uh, he, he insisted that all would address him as our Lord and our God. Now, do you think that Rome was teetering on a, a precipice here? Can you imagine if next January, at the inauguration of our new president, outgoing President Clinton, were to declare, I am no longer your president, but I want you to know I am now your God. We wouldn't know whether to laugh or to be outraged. But for the Romans, that is exactly what occurred. It was deadly serious business. If you did not burn incense to Caesar, you did so at pain, on pain of death. You could be executed for treason and for blasphemy. What of this fatal head wound? We're not sure. All kinds of commentators talk about that. Most think it was Nero, because Nero committed suicide at the age of 32. And then his body disappeared. And many thought that he was actually had been raised up and they were waiting for the day and they waited for decades. They thought he was hiding, recovering, and one day he would return with a great army to retake his kingdom. And so even as John was writing this, there was still this expectation that Nero, who was dead, would rise again and return to the throne. That's the history. If the sea beast is the Roman Empire led by these blasphemous pseudo-divine Christ, then who is the land beast? Who is this land beast that draws worship to the beast? And most would say that it is the imperial priesthood. They had a whole series of priests that were set up around at these different temples that I've talked about throughout the sermons. And their job was to draw the devotion of the people to the emperor. Their job was to police the crowds and make sure that they were coming by, pinching incense, dropping it in, offering an offering and saying that this, that Caesar is God. So you had the emperors and you had their false prophets, the imperial priesthood, who were working this great work of blasphemy. What do we make of this mark of the beast? 666. It is perhaps the most famous series of three numbers in all of humanity. What does it mean? There, and you can imagine, speculation abounds. There are no numbers. That in, the ancient, uh, in ancient times, 
letters were used for numbers. And so numerical value would be attached to each number of the alphabet. And if you took names and added up the, the value of the numbers, then you had a, a, a sum of numbers that, that was the secret name. This was called gematria. Gematria. And for centuries, people have tried to decipher what 666 might mean. With a little maneuvering, it's pretty easy to have Nero's name be 666. The problem is you always got to change it from Latin into Greek or Russian or something. I mean, it's not quite as neat as we'd like it to be. But every generation has had its own Antichrist. The World War II, the nominees included Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. You got it right there. In my generation, who was the, who was the, uh, the, the dark horse? Well, <laughs> okay, a little earlier. <laughs> Henry Kissinger was one because he was Jewish. That means he had risen out of the land or Eratz. The other was John F. Kennedy. Shot down, mortal head wound. We were just sure that he was going to rise from the dead. He was going to be the Antichrist. And we were trying to figure out how his name added up to 666. I remember sitting in youth room, adding numbers underneath the letters and trying to add up his name. I know, it's bizarre. Most recently, the suggestion has been that it's Ronald Reagan. He had th six letters in each of his names. And when they finally took up a home after they were in the White House, they moved to a, a Bel Air address that was 666. And so that was certainly must be the answer to it. Well, whatever the identity of John's beast, and he did it intentionally to hide it, and he did a good job. But this one thing is clear. Remember, numbers in Revelation, they are not... Statistics, they are symbols. Tell me again, what does seven mean? Perfection, completion. What does six mean then? Incompletion. The six days were not enough. God needed the seventh day to rest. Again and again, Jewish teaching was that this number six was incomplete, imperfect. You realize the name of this pseudo-God is failure. But it's not failure once. He wants to be a triple seven. He is a triple six. He is failure upon failure upon failure. He could not kill the baby. He could not kill the baby's mother. He could not defeat the heavenly host. And he cannot defeat the church. He is a three-time loser. So what difference does all of this make to us? Does this vision perhaps have a prophetic meaning as well? Commentators love to speculate. Who will be Antichrist? Is this Antichrist? Because he's not named that in this text. Who will it be? We're waiting for it to find out. Many commentators believe that the sea beast and the land beast will be actually two persons. And I, that is absolutely possible. But there is something that I want to pose to you. Another interpretation that speaks right from the moment. For there are more warnings that we need to draw from this text that... important to us right now as they will be for the final moment when human history is written. First, there is a warning against patriotism that becomes our God. And secondly, is a warning against religion that becomes our God. We in the United States desperately need to hear these two warnings. First, patriotism that becomes our God. The sea beast is an image of runaway nationalism. In Daniel's vision, the four creatures represented four kingdoms that eventually, after rising up, fell. They were Babylon, Persia, Mede, and Greece. 
In John's time, the beast was Rome. And since then, there have been all kinds of other great empires that have risen and fallen. The Spanish Empire, the British Empire, Nazism, Communism. Who would have believed that the Soviet Union would have fallen in less than a hundred years? This great superpower. The sea beast is an image of coercive, colossal political power that dares to make itself into God. Do you get that? The sea beast is coercive, colossal political power that forces people to recognize it as the God. It is easy for us to look at other fallen regimes and say, Ah, oh, yes, that applies to the Nazis. Ah, oh, yes, that applies to Soviet, uh, Soviet communism. Do we dare ignore the warning to ourselves? Are we in the United States not facing the very same peril that other great, that other great nations have faced as they have risen and fallen? This country was founded on Christian principles by primarily Christian men and women. I know that today the historical revisionists tell us that they really weren't Christian, but in fact they really were. They do bad history when they tell you that. They are lying to you when they tell you that. Most of the central features, the central figures of our history were Christian men and women who were looking for religious and personal liberty. And they founded this nation on Christian, Judeo-Christian principles. I believe that the remarkable blessings we have experienced as a young nation of 225 years are due to the decidedly Christian nature of the origin of this country. Now, what are we doing with our spiritual legacy today? We are running away from it as fast as our secular legs will take us. We can teach our kids to put condoms on bananas, but we dare not post the Ten Commandments on the wall of a school. We dare not pray at a baccalaureate service or after a ball game. Recently, there has been a great controversy about the denomination of the House chaplain. Frankly, I'm surprised that we still have Senate and House chaplains, and I believe it is only a matter of time before those institutions come under attack. Our spiritual credentials as a country are to be called into serious question. We still kill more than 3,000 babies a day. Thousands of families continue to be devastated by the tragedy of divorce, and there is no statistical difference between Christians and non-Christians. We are the most drugged-up country on the face of the earth. Most of the movies that we tout as Oscar candidates are complete trash. We continue to charge ourselves deeper and deeper into debt, believing that the next new thing that we buy is what will finally make us happy. I'm a pretty patriotic guy. We proudly fly our nation's flag from our home. We teach our children that the United States is the greatest nation in the earth, and I believe that it still is. But I am also aware, and especially from this text, of how patriotism can become idolatry. I know people whose religion is a crazy combination of God, patriotism, and fraternal organizations all wrapped into one. There is nothing necessarily wrong with being an elk or a moose or a Rotarian they do wonderful work in the community. There is nothing necessarily wrong with being a patriotic American. But we, my brothers and sisters, have a higher allegiance, a greater calling. We are, first and foremost, children of the king. Some have asked, and it's a good and fair question, why we don't display the American flag in our sanctuary. I will give you my answer. As much as I love our country... 
I don't ever want us to reach a point where we think that the empty cross of Jesus Christ and the American flag deserve the same devotion. They do not. We fly our flag proudly outside of our church. We display our flag proudly on special occasions. But we will not mislead people into believing that our flag is a symbol of Christian worship that deserves the same honor as the empty cross of Jesus Christ. Our first allegiance, my American Christian brothers and sisters, is to Jesus. And when we uncritically embrace our political structures or those of any other land, we have succumbed to the temptations of the sea beast. Our country has become our God. Here's the other great warning, and with this I close, that issues forth from this text. Beware of religion that becomes our God. The land beast was a deceiver. With trickery and with evil power, he deluded people into false worship. You remember back in chapter 7, when God, what God did to ensure that his followers would be protected in the tribulation to come? Do you remember what he did? Where did he put a mark? Right on their forehead. He put a mark of his ownership and protection right on their forehead. Now comes the land beast, the fraud, the fake Holy Spirit, the deceiver. He performs some miracles. He causes people to worship the sea beast. He too makes people put a mark on them. A mark on their forehead and on their right hand. And only the followers of this religion will be able to be accepted into society. Only they will be able to buy and sell and survive. The land beast is false religion. It is godless religion. It is religion with all of the trappings and none of the truth. We are a nation that is full of religious structures and institutions. We are a nation that is full of religious people, church people, who do not realize that church membership without a personal faith in Jesus Christ is idolatry. This morning we received 40-some new souls into our church I promise you, every one of them heard this message Friday night. Being a member of Chapel Hill Church will never save you. Being religious will never save you. The only thing that will save you is the mark of Jesus Christ upon your soul. Do you bear that mark? Do you bear the mark of your Savior? By the way, do you know what the numerical value of the name Jesus is 888. He's not just perfect. He is matchless. Do you bear that number upon your soul? As the ushers come forward, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Thank you that we live in this great land. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you for those who died to preserve those freedoms. But we acknowledge, O God, that as a nation we have turned away from you. We are running as fast as we can from our Christian tradition and roots. Forgive us, O God. And may it begin with us a turn of the nation's heart back to their God. Preserve us from the idolatry that lifts up a nation over you. That lifts up a religion over you. May we instead know the true meaning of Christian faith, which is the name of Jesus Christ imprinted upon our souls. We now give back to you some of that which you have given to us. For the time being, Lord, we can buy, we can sell. And so we give some of our wealth and pray that you will use it to proclaim the glorious gospel of the matchless Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.